Welcome to another episode of ADD Storytelling, a podcast in which we explore the myths and legends of our time, the past, and the future in no particular order and sometimes less than perfect focus. My name is Tucker, and as always, this is presented, this episode is presented, these episodes are presented by our beautiful, diaphanous, neurodivergent hostess, Maddie. How's it going, Maddie? Oh, you know, not really anywhere, because my foot's propped up. Foot's busted, huh? Busted. You busted that foot open today? This week? Sometime? I don't know why I said today. That was a week ago. It's not even a week ago yet. At the time of recording, has not yet been a week. Nearly. Six days. Yeah. But who's counting? You're fine. So, do we have something extremely uh, topical and Halloween-themed planned for today? Something very spooky and frightening and particularly macabre? Or is this something that's not at all spooky, but rather just a fun and interesting story that doesn't have anything to do with the Halloween season? Yeah, nothing really to do with Halloween. Nothing spooky at all. I could have thought of that in advance, but I didn't. (laughs) It is Halloween today. It's literally Halloween. I didn't didn't think about it. No? Nope. Cool. Didn't think about any Halloween-like myths in any way. Did you throw anything spooky into it? Just as like a, nope. a nod to the spooky season? Nope. Mm-mm. Nothing kind of peppered in there about ghouls? Nope. No, nothing about like old banshee lore? Uh-uh. Great. Well, let's get into it. What are we talking about today? Uh, So this is maybe part one, but not sure when part two will happen. <laughs> okay. Of um, Of like indigenous gender identities, and, I guess, sacred legends that go with it. Interesting. So are these uh, stories that are directly about gender identity and the that, that topic, or are they just tales that involve people with more fluid sexual orientation and gender identities? I guess it's like the tales that relate to the moral and theoretical understanding of of gender outside of the western binary as they related to the like indigenous context of that tribe okay is this all north american indigenous people or yes interesting right on this is there are obviously identities that are not i mean obviously there are more throughout the globe it's specifically North American in, in origin for this one. For this part one of part how, one of how many? I don't know. This this is this is like a longer thing that I want to research, but it's it's like a very dense research, obviously. All right. So sources: Tucker's favorite part. <laughs> We've got the middle gender in Zuni religion from Alcation. Mark Carlson Ghost dot com. Say Mark Carlson Ghost. Yep. So that's spooky. Uh-huh. That's all right. You accidentally got into the Halloween spirit. Uh, in spite of yourself. Ned by Lee citing Lee. sources. Ned Leahy Legends Navajo Two Spirit. 
um, womenshistory.org on WeWa, Harlan Pruden's presentation on Two-Spirit History. <laughs> we got Galileo.org, Aeon.co, The Nearly Forgotten Origin Myth of Hawaii's Third Gender, As Told by One, Honolulu Magazine, Portraits of Gender and Sexualities in the Hawaiian Community, Our Coming In Stories, Cree Identity, Body Sovereignty, and Gender Self-Determination by Alex Wilson, and Rainbow and Red by InTheFray.org. I thought I'd start with, like, basically where this is coming from, which is, like, the definition of two-spirit, so that we have a sort of context for what we're talking about. Okay. So. Because I have none, so yeah, take it away. (laughs) Build this world out. The term two-spirit was created in 1990 at the Indigenous Lesbian and Gay International Gathering in Winnipeg. God, that sounds fucking awesome. And specifically chosen to distinguish and distance Native Americans slash slash First Nations people from non-Native peoples. Where the hell's Winnipeg? I don't know. Is that... It's just not really hitting home for me that I have no idea where Winnipeg is. (laughs) With a gun to my head, I could not... The cat's eating your book. I think it's like northeast. God damn it, cat. The primary person... He's eating their pill bottle now. (laughs) (laughs) He smelled it. (laughs) Does that smell good? The primary purpose of coining a new term was to encourage the replacement of the outdated and considered offensive anthropological term, Verdachi. While this new term has not been universally accepted, it has been criticized as a term of erasure by traditional communities who already have their own terms for people being grouped under this new term. Well, so everyone's unhappy. And by those who reject what they call the Western binary implications, such as implying that Natives believe these individuals are both male and female. It has generally received more acceptance and use than the anthropological term it replaced. Which was... Verdachi. Yeah. Which means something along enslaved boy, something like that. Really? Yeah, it's really not good. The term slash identity of two-spirit does not make sense unless it is contextualized within a Native American frame. Which is what you're attempting to do now. You You said the name of the part that we're in. Yes. Contextualizing it. Your world building like Denis Villeneuve. Two-spirit within a traditional setting was a gender analysis and not a sexual orientation. Today, most people associate the term with LGBTQ plus natives. However, the work of two-spirit organizations is more akin with the traditional understanding of two-spiritedness. Meaning that it can be applied, it is used and applies solely to that identity, the indigenous identity and indigenous culture, but cannot be taken and used in describing, like, Western, like, identities or values. I'm <laughs> saying the gender-conforming LGBT or third and fourth gender ceremony roles traditionally embodied by First Nation people intended to be under the modern umbrella of two-spirit can vary widely, even among the indigenous people who accept the English language term. No one First Nations cultures, gender, or sexuality categories apply to all or even a majority of these cultures. So, two-spirit... This feels like uh, if a lawyer was reading, like, about gender identity. Yeah, it it's is just like, of like, God, that. I want to sleep, and I'm also like... <laughs> the legalese itself is such a, a knot to unravel that I get lost by the end of the sentence in terms of where we started. So, essentially... Like, the conference decided this... The one in Winnipeg. The one in Winnipeg... Wherever the fuck that is. ...decided to use this term. Uh Uh-huh. 
But and not everyone was happy about it. Yes, because it's if it's a gathering of people from like many hundreds of tribes, right? Of course, that's like like huge diversity in background and I mean I got to say I'm surprised if they rolled it out with this like this presentation that you're now reciting I don't understand how anyone couldn't be jazzed about it Maddie's sick <laughs> <laughs> of me right now and my bullshit <laughs> uh, Okay okay I guess the main purpose of all of that was to say that a two spirit Sounds like a reductionist term, but it's really a compromise term that all of these tribes have, like, kind of agreed to use, but it's still under debate because Two-Spirit doesn't encompass what all of these different gender identities are and the context in which they were born. Okay. The history of acceptance towards queer identity in indigenous American culture has been concealed by two major factors. This is old wet boy Harlan Pruden. Harlan Pruden is saying this. All right. A wet boy? Is that what you said? This is a really respected indigenous researcher that you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Some of my... You can be a respected wet boy. I don't think so. I don't know what that means. It doesn't mean anything. I said earlier that his name reminds me of someone that spends a lot of time by water. Okay. So Well, let's not say that. Concealed by two major factors. The first being colonial suppression of indigenous sexual tolerance... And Christian Indians' rejection of traditional practice. When the colonists came, as in the British and the Spanish, they basically decimated the two-spirit people. The communities, indigenous communities, hid what was left of their queer people, either hid them or kept them on the down low. Um, I would imagine the subculture as well, or I guess not even a subculture, but the culture itself of... Queer identity was also repressed and hidden. Mm-hmm. Thus, for most indigenous Americans, identifying as two-spirit is a process of discovery, not an organic outgrowth of living in modern communities. Pruden explains that if there is a, a reactivation or an honoring of two-spirit people, sometimes there's not even an explanation because of the stigma associated with it. Much of his own knowledge comes from old books or ones written by white authors, like The Spirit in the Flesh, by Walter L. Williams, written in the late 80s. Which I also referenced and read, and it's, it's a lot. The dearth of research on specific aspects of two-spirit life can be frustrating. And there's a notable lack of information on two-spirit women, a gap that Pruder attributes to male privilege. This is a bunch of surprise after surprise after surprise. <laughs> Apparently the guy that wrote the book in the 80s is the white gay man, so there we go. Huh. Anyway, now that we have some context, about what Two Spirit is in Manitoba, Canada. That's where Winnipeg is. Mm-hmm. Good to know. I yeah. thought it was Canada, but I didn't want to say it because I wasn't sure. I thought it was Canada. It has a distinctly Canadian smell to it for a word. Yeah, like I was saying, this is super difficult to research because, of course, you're researching when you start researching gender identity, you start researching the whole society and the entire tribe and like everything that they've ever done and all of the things they believe, and that's like really deep. That's a lot of deep research. Just a minefield of rabbit holes. Yes. So I decided that I'm focusing pretty much on the indigenous gender identity of a few tribes and the mythology that went with it to give it a moral and religious context in that indigenous society. Okay. Our first indigenous myth comes to us from indigenous Hawaii. 
And the gender identity is Mahu. Spam. Spam is in Hawaii now. Spam is my identity when I'm in Hawaii. <laughs> Whenever I'm in Paris. <laughs> Whenever I find myself in Lisbon, I, I become just fully immersed in tapas culture. Interesting. Yeah. The myth is called Kapai Mahu. This myth was transcribed from an animated film called Kapai Mahu, which is narrated by a famous Mahu icon and activist. John Cleese. <laughs> Hina Lea Moa Wankalu, or uh, Kumu Hina. That was off. Hina Lea Moana is also involved in an amazing documentary named for them called Kumu Hina. There's a shortened version that they've released for free, and I watched it. It's called A Place in the Middle. Super recommended. Like your belly button. That's the place in my middle. Oh, I get it. I, that is a weird... Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then Hina is Kanaka Mali, or native Hawaiian. Mm-hmm. Kumuhina also gives a contemporary definition of the term mahu, one of the many, many indigenous gender identities under the umbrella term of two-spirit. So here's the quote from them. A mahu is an individual that straddles somewhere in the middle of the male and female binary. It does not define their sexual preference or gender expression because gender roles, gender expressions, and sexual relationships all have been severely influenced by the changing times. It's dynamic. It's like life. Anyway, Mm. here is the myth from the animated film, which you should also watch. It's won several Mm. awards. Um, Kapei Mahu. That's the animated one? Kapei Mahu. Yes, it's animated. Hell yeah. So, here it is. Long ago. How long ago? Long ago. I need a date. Don't got it. Can you guess? No. Will you? No. Okay. Long ago. Four extraordinary people voyaged across the ocean from their home in Tahiti to Hawaii. Damn. The animation shows the boats like those built in Fiji called the Kamako. Or the long boats. Tamako. They're also kind of used in the movie Moana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They settled in Uluku, Waikiki. The four visitors to Waikiki were all tall with deep voices, but they were simultaneously soft-spoken and gentle. They were neither male or female. They were mahu, a mixture of both in mind, heart, and spirit. The leader of the four was called Kapai Mahu. The gods favored the visitors with gifts of the science of healing. The mahu, Kapuni, possessed great spiritual power. Another one. What could they do? What kind of powers do they have? That's just what it says. I, I would need to know more, though. That it's just this great spiritual power. Were they, good, were they, were they good with a bow and arrow? For like, one of like them. Clint Barton. Clint Barton, yeah, maybe. Another, so they're naming all four of them. Clint Barton is such a good name. I hope one of the four gets named Clint Barton. Kinohi was all-seeing. They could see what was wrong in the person's body through spiritual power, such as a wrongness in the lungs. Okay, healer, healing class, cleric. They're all healers. Kahalua could heal from afar. Kapemahu healed by lying their hands on others. Mm. They spread their healing knowledge to the people of Hawaii. When the healers had completed their work on the island, the people of Waikiki wished to show their gratitude by building a monument in their honor. One moonless night, they gathered at Kaimuki, an area famous for its bell rock. They moved four great boulders all the way to Waikiki by pulling them by hand using ropes and rolling branches. As the sun rose, the healers began to transfer their powers to their stones, placing idols of Mahu under each one. 
The healers began to sing, and you could see their power glowing in the stones as they worked. The ceremony lasted for a full moon. Then, knowing that their healing power was safe in the stones, the mahu vanished. Hmm. Is Evan ghosted them? That's right. Or they go back to Tahiti? They Wa- vanished. Waikiki to Tahiti is a, that's a fucking journey. Mm-hmm. So they were, they were ripped like doctors that showed up? Because that sounds very appealing. Just a bunch of hunky doctors. I don't know if they were hunky, but they were gentle. They they just paddled from Tahiti to Waikiki. They didn't paddle. They were sailboats. Yeah, you're right. You can be, you can be really dumpy looking and <laughs> operate a sailboat. It takes no physical effort. That's how Jimmy Buffett does it. What are you talking about? You're so silly. You're so silly. Yeah. Tell me more about these magical dumbbells. That's basically the tale. The animation goes on to talk about the monument and how it was later recovered. Yeah. And the rock is in that one, right? <laughs> no. The rock is in Moana. That's what you're thinking about? I am thinking about Moana. I haven't seen Moana. Anyway. the rock is in it. The bell rock. <laughs> See, I was listening. It might be worthwhile to paint a simplified picture of how this tale became buried in time. I thought it would be interesting to put some context to that. Context is the word of the day. I think you've said it more than anything else today. Sorry. It's fine. I take a drink every time Maddie says context. <laughs> okay. For all those listening. So Hawaiian views of gender and sexuality are documented in Oleo Hawaii in Mo'o Lelo, the cultural stories and myths, myths of Hawaii. Nupepa, Hawaiian language newspaper articles. Oli and Mele, layering cultural and historic ide- ideologies within deeper meanings known as keona. What inspired you to take on an affectation at that moment of all moments? What do you mean an affectation? You started doing a voice and started gesturing wildly with your hands. I'm just trying you to were... pronounce the words. Okay, yeah. Because were... I don't know how to pronounce them. You were overtaken by the spirit of performance there, and it was beautiful. Uh, yeah, hit those... Hit those uh, commas hard. There's a lot of hard breaks in indigenous Hawaiian language. Well, they're apostrophes. Is that what yeah, you're talking about? Yeah, that's what I meant to say. Yeah, the upper comma. Upstairs comma. The upstairs comma? Okay. Um, none of those had comma except for the first one. Fuck. So, well, then you I did mean, a, apostrophes. You did a really good job. Damn it. They're called upstairs commas. <laughs> then you did, good, did a good job of not hitting them hard. Oli tends to be those compositions which are primarily chanted, and Mele are compositions which may be sung or chanted for hula with musical accompaniment or any combination of the two. So that's how things were kept in record for this society. Yeah? Oral tradition and musical tradition? That's right. Individuals were encouraged by this principle to fulfill their desires in both their sexual and gender identities. It was not just healthy to explore your gender and sexual identities. It was virtuous. The greatest sexual kapu, or taboo, within traditional Hawaiian society depended solely on class distinction. The function of sex appropriation was, was of greatest concern to those of the highest rank. Mo'oi. Like, they, highest ranking folks wanted a lot more than babies? Yes. Okay. Keep them fucking. Mo'oi wahine. Because of their political duties. On the other hand, maka ai nana were free to enjoy the pleasures of sex without the pressure of political procreation, a practice known as moyaku moima, sleeping here or sleeping there. <laughs> Ali'i often took 
I can name lovers of the same sex to practice, quote-unquote, safe sex. Without the possibility well, of procreation... What does safe sex mean in this context? Drink. Without the possibility of procreation, they can fulfill their desires without threatening the bloodline. Safe uh, sex. That's safe sex? Mm -hmm. Just not... So baby equals unsafe. That's right. Babies are unsafe, generally. Within the context of sacred virility, Aikane relationships were openly and commonly practiced. <laughs> relationships transcended the physical, however. I feel like this all gives a new, new meaning to oral tradition. A wink. <laughs> they required respect, transparency, and connection, and the idea of ohana extended to all relationships of great intimacy. That means family. The openness surrounding sexual expression double meanings of a sexual nature, and the open body expression of hula and traditional garb were deeply threatening to the colonizers that first came to Hawaii. The ideas of mahu were buried and forcefully stamped out. Lordy, are these people having fun in style? This is antithetical to all our, our entire way of life in Europe. <laughs> there was also, like, several double entendres, or, like, multiple entendres, that was, like, really common when... Indigenous Hawaiians were talking to each other. It's like layers of meeting, and some of them were like... Thanks and thanks and thanks. Yeah, some of them were fun and naughty. Do you have examples? I do not. What the f... You're just going to reference these? So then how do you even know about it? You're, you're saying all this with like a knowing wink in your eye, as though you've heard these multiple entendres. I read about them. These triple entendres. You read about them. Mm hmm So when you were doing this They reading, didn't have examples. No. It sucks for me. Yeah, we weren't gifted them with the examples. Anyway, the traditional structure of Hawaiian society was uprooted after the death of Kamehameha. Thank you. Kamehameha I. Succession of Liholiho to the throne and abolition of the Kapu system, allowing Christian missionaries to take control. Hawaiian culture has resiliently survived, though the effects of colonialism are felt by all. That's the bad one. There are many documents in native Hawaiian, as several people refuse to translate from their original language. There are now some schools in Hawaii that practice traditional customs, mm -hmm. like the ones featured in the documentary Kumuhina, which everyone should watch. Mm -hmm. Today's episode brought to you by Kumuhina. So the Dine tribe, also known as the Navajo, have a complex and inclusive understanding of gender. So there are some traditional names and roles. So males, female, intersex, body, slash, 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 nadli e, or nadli, um, or a nadli he, which is a singular one. That was a plural. And there's also a female-bodied version, ba, or dil ba, yeah? There are several mythologies that are have survived. Creation myths of the Dine are, like, super complex and, like, very long. Like, they've got their own book. There's, like, five different worlds. It looks totally crazy. So we're only focusing on the Nadlihi myth right what, now. What world are they from? Um, of the five. Jotunheim? Svartalheim? I think it's, like, they're Most part of all of them, to be honest. Jotunheim. The creation of five worlds is, like, the duration of the myth. But, like, oh. they're kind of involved in all of them. Are there nine worlds in Norse mythology? I don't know. Is it nine? I don't know. The nine realms, yeah, there are nine. In this one, there are five. Uh-huh. In this one that I'm living in, there's one so far. But I don't know. I haven't, maybe I haven't grinded enough yet to unlock the other world. 
There's material in here for you, I think. You're, you're going to give me material with which to weave content? Possibly. Like a dream weaver? Yeah. Podcast joy? So, first man and woman gave birth to a few pairs of twins. The first being a pair of androgynous twins that had a non-specific gender. Okay. So they went on to give birth to more conventional pairs of twins, one boy and one girl, who ended up marrying each other and collectively producing the Dine. The people. Yeah? Yeah, that's like most start, like, civilization. Yeah, yeah, it's very biblical. Yeah, sadly. The androgynous twins did not marry, however, as they were barren. Sandoval, an elder of the Dine, gave their names as Asham Nadli, Nadli, and Yoga Nadli. That is... Nadli? I I don't know how to say it properly. I'm just reading how it's written here. Oh, no, I'm just, I'm asking you if it, I thought you were doing it right, and I was, I thought the, the end of this was going to be, and that's where we get the name, Natalie. (laughs) Maybe. It's a a very old word, so maybe Natalie's are all spawned from the DNA. (laughs) I'm just now imagining just a classic white Natalie who is already insufferable, but then was like... Actually, not only am I 116th Navajo, but my name is Navajo. I'm Natalie. And I hate that. I hate that that's in my head now. Yeah, she probably does ballet, huh? Uh, she's definitely at Starbucks right now. <laughs> the pumpkin Write, spice is real. Writing her screenplay. So, the two names of the androgynous twins translated. The turquoise one who changes, and the white shell one who changes. You say the white shell one? White shell. Damn it. As in a little, a little seashell or... Some sort of shell. That you hunt for? <laughs> yes, that That's you hunt a call for. Callback. Exactly. Um, so the Ned Leahy twins. Most DNA storytellers agree that a pair of androgynous twins were the first born of first man and first woman. The people, the DNA people, began farming, but were afraid that enemy tribes might try to destroy their crops. They set the two Ned Leahy twins on guard, one at a dam. Do we have their names? And the Hee Hee-tons? Uh The turquoise one who changes and the oh, white and the... shell one who changes. Can we call them Minnie and Nanny? Indeed. <laughs> which one's Minnie and which one's Nanny? The one who was at the dam ended up inventing pottery of all kinds. The other twin invented the water bottle. <laughs> the water bottle. I, yeah, I'm just, I'm imagining being a parent and being like, wow, my child invented an entire craft. We call this pottery now. It didn't exist before. What do you have over there? Is that a fucking Nestle water bottle? C- cool, sure. I mean, I get that's going to be a major source of pollutant and just be kind of the most commonly disposed of plastic in the world. Great. You, so you've created fucking up the ocean. Thank you, child. Do you see this art your sibling made? They're working on video games now. What the fuck will that be? I'm excited to see it, though. You've got a bottle. Cool, yep. Oh, you can refill it? But that makes you feel good for a while, huh? But then you're just going to throw it in the trash. Yeah, there you go. The Nadlihi twins are credited with making all manner of useful devices, including a metate, a metate for grinding corn, stirring sticks for cooking, and a brush for combing hair. Yeah, that's good. Also, I'm sure the water bottle is sustainable because it was created by an indigenous tribe. No, no, no. Uh, truly, <laughs> I, I get that. Like, in the con- <laughs> context, drink. In the context of the story, I get that, but I just like to envision it's just like a, a water. So that's the beginning of the twins, yeah? Now let's hear about their gruesome end. 
Get to the gore. It's Halloween. Well, Natalie, he, and the war between the sexes. Natalie. This is me. I'm Natalie, and I'm about to get a fucking war with the sexes. Not long after the birth of their children, first man and first woman got into a serious argument. Hunting had been bad for the men for some time. First woman, who tended to the fields, questioned whether she needed her husband for anything at all. Upset, first man (laughs) sequestered himself in his hogan and wouldn't come out. The people became concerned. They sent for Nadlihi. I'm Natalie. You sent for me. In this section of the narrative, I was at Abercrombie. Um, they and are regarded. They are regarded as one person rather than as a pair of twins. The Natalie twin. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Nalihi was well regarded for both their senior status, being a person of rank, and their ability in working out conflicts between men and women. The men referred to Nalihi as my grand uncle, my grandmother. Doing show. Doing so shows their respect, but also amply demonstrates their androgyny. Uncle or grandmother. I'm Natalie. I got rank and I'm a bit of a skank. Hi, I'm Natalie. <laughs> I'm about to go to fucking war. <laughs> Torched earth up in here. When Natalie, he went to visit, visit their chief. So, I'm Natalie. Hi, chief. First man was very hungry. He asked Natalie to cook a meal for him. Impressed with the results, first man asked Nadlihi what they could make, wait, what yeah. they could make all by themselves. What they can make all by themselves. Yeah. What can you make all by yourself? All right, yeah, pop quiz, Maddie. If you go to Natalie's house, what uh-huh. are you expecting? What's the most basic meal? Uh, What's Natalie cooking? Spaghetti. That's what I was going to fucking say. We should get married. Okay. Spaghetti is basic as fuck. Spaghetti. Okay. Mom's spaghetti. Uh, their reply is included by most storytellers. Nadlihi answered that they could make pottery, jugs, brooms, baking stones, and more. Nadlihi informed First Man that they knew how to plant all manner of seeds and could cook all of the traditional DNA dishes. God, Natalie is a fucking hipster. In short, <laughs> Nadlihi was saying that they could do all the things that women could do. First man called a great meeting. May, this is an audio medium, but you did just suggestively arch your eyebrows there. Yes. Name some of the things women can do. Well, name and, name all things women can do right now. Go. Well, in this context, drink. They're tending the fields and tending can make food out, and out. also be awesome. Getting sexy. First man called a great meeting in which the men and the animal spirits all met. One version suggests that the meeting was held in Nahidli's Hogan. So many people came that Spider Woman had to blow on the walls to make the place larger so that everyone could fit in. Hold the fuck up. Spider Woman. <laughs> yeah. The blowing men... on the walls? That's right. That's what you associate with spiders is the act of blowing? Uh-huh. The men debated the merits of leaving the women behind. They wondered with whom <laughs> Nahidli would go Man if they did. After all, they were born both male and female. First man put the question to Nanlihi. After some thought, they said they would go with men. With this knowledge, first man decided the men and women would separate. The men crossed the river and took male children with them. Nanlihi filled the deer udder with warm broth to nurse the babies. Nanlihi also showed the men how to plant corn. Subsequently, you're going to want to learn to plant corn, men. Because sometimes they fuck up at hunting, as we've learned. Nanlihi ground corn, ground corn, cooked for the men, and took care of the children. The men prospered while the women suffered. The men heard the Guys hungry had a cries nice of the long women. Weekend. 
Oh my goodness. What? Are you, is something, are you just reading something for the first time over there? I just forgot about this part. Um, the men heard the hungry cries of the women. According to male storytellers. Okay. Apparently okay, they neglected that's a, that's their a big, fields. That's a big uh, preface. Apparently they neglected their fields. It is said they indulged in sexual activities such as masturbation instead of working. That sounds right. As a uh, as a, <laughs> as one with a male point of view, yeah, this sounds right. This is how I would tell the story. They're saying the women were doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. That's okay. what I'm saying. The men looked over. We're like, we're, we've done such great work over this long weekend. So much fraternal team building. What's happening over here? Oh, the men wondered if they and should pillow ask. fights. Goodness. Yeah. This is like a, yeah. The men wondered. Bad eighties camp movie. <laughs> <laughs> if they should ask the women to rejoin them. <laughs> Upon seeing their feverish <laughs> masturbation, they're like, hmm, maybe they're not all so bad. Get the them masturbation over here. that they possibly got made up. Yeah, I don't know. It just it's like there's a parenthetical here. Anyway, um Nadlihi, exhausted from the work they were doing, <laughs> encouraged the re- reconciliation. No, they're doing all the cooking and yeah, cleaning yeah. and harvesting and I know, I just taking wanted, care of all the children. I know, I just wanted to make a great Masturbation joke for once in my life, Maddie. Oh, was it? I missed it. Can I have that? Yeah, you can have it. I'll leave it in Thank there. You. This is an explicit podcast. <laughs> the women underwent healing sweat baths. <laughs> so, sorry. Then, in the special ceremony, <laughs> is that just that's that's where the masturbation thing came from. If that was if Nadlihi and their assistant Edel the pot carrier gave the women one set of dishes in each of the four traditional DNA colors. What are those? I don't know, actually. I got you. I'm co-host. Okay. The next story is Nadlihi's role as mediator and a cultural hero. So there's four colors? Black, black, white, blue, and yellow. Black, white, blue, and yellow? Yeah. Oh, good to know. The story of the conflict of the sexes warrants further comment. It seems designed to explain how men came to be farmers and women were relegated to primarily cooking and child-rearing tasks. The Dine were originally a hunting people who migrated to the southwest where they were introduced by farming by their settled Pueblo neighbors. It appears that women originally did the farming while men initially continued to rely on hunting. The legend seems to suggest that at some point men co-opted the farming choice from the women. Um, it also makes sense that it was the Nadlihi who taught the men to farm. As an intermediate gender... They knew both women's skills, but felt a loyalty to the men. Further, among the Zuni and Hopi, dress-wearing male kachinas are associated with the fertility of corn. They distribute seeds of corn to the people during festivals. Soon after a reconciliation of the sexes, a great flood arose. In some of the Dine narratives, it is a Nalihi who used the giant male reed and a giant female reed to help the people escape, climbing up through the reeds into the new world which the Dine still live today. In the 1920s, hell yeah, that was a great time. A Dine elder named Kla and Nahidli said the Nadlihi who helped the men during the separation of the sexes, sexes was named, mm-hmm. literally means wrapped in a rainbow. Said like Noel was in that one fantastic episode of Great, Bar- 
Great British Bake Off. Oh my god! Wonderful sweater. I really wanted that sweater, and I looked it up. Nope. I think it's like I look. I you isn't got it like six hundred? You got super excited, and this was like two years ago, like right before Christmas. I was like, I want to see if I can get this sweater for Maddie. And yeah, it was like a, he's he's a rock star, and it's like a sixteen hundred dollars sweater. Yeah, it's like an extremely. It was also it was also sold out because of that. Episode yeah, 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 one hundred percent. It was sold out. And yeah, yeah, it was like yeah, totally two grand or something. Yeah, it's expensive. Anyway, sweaters shouldn't be that much. Hot take. He suggested it was all to Cece, who hid the sacred male and female reeds beneath his rainbow cloak to rescue the people from the flood. Other traditions attribute this to Coyote or Turquoise. Um, classic flood stories all over the place. Yeah, classic flood stories. I can talk. Everybody got them flood stories. Uh, the turquoise one who changes or the white shell one who changes in a joint effort. That's other legends attribute that to them. Even the sacred reeds themselves, which were called the Alkinashi, may have originally been androgynous. It is said that the reeds were only later cut up and rearranged into conventionally gendered men and women. Reed people? Yeah, I guess so. Reed people. Got reed people. Because the people climbed out the reeds and male or female. So in this Dine tradition, people made from reeds. In Mesopotamian tradition, they're made from clay. Mm-hmm. In Nordic tradition, they're made from oak. I like how these gods just kind of like yeah, twiddle from, Yeah, from things. things. Yeah. After the flood and safe emergence, the creation of the final world continued. There's considerable disagreement among elders as to who became the bearer of the moon and the bearer of the sun. Sometimes the individuals appointed as bearers were Nanlihi. White Shell Girl and Androgynous Bigo Chidi have both been called the moon bearer. Sandoval suggested the sun bearer was Turquoise Boy is sometimes given as another name for Turquoise one who changes. Nanlihi person. Yeah. Huzzah! <laughs> yes. It's wearing such a look of consternation upon consternation. her face. Consternation. Yes. Digs through this. So those are the creation story myths that are associated with the Middle genders in, in or DNA separate culture. genders, yeah, in the DNA tribe. Okay. So the name Natalie comes from New Mexico. Totally, we've we've created that creation story this is, this is in this our, in this myth, other creation story. We've made this one of so, Natalie. Natalie. The beginning of Natalie's. The beginning of the basic, basic origin. It's changed over time. The basic night rises. The one who changes has changed. Into Natalie. Into Natalie. <laughs> the next tribe is the Cree. Whoa. The Cree? The Cree. C R E E. Okay, so different than the Cree in K R E E from, say, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes, different. Okay, they were. So we're not I talking, think they were, we're not talking first. about a Marvel property. No, I don't think okay. so. Okay. Okay. I think okay. it predates Marvel. Oh, the before time is what we call that. Okay, <laughs> the before Marvel times. Yeah. No, just before time. We don't, no need to say the whole thing. Everyone knows it's understood. It's implicit in many ways. Cree understanding of gender is outside Western understanding, as is all of this. The words collected for some of the gender distinctions are loosely translated here. They're translated to Western understanding, so let's just do that. There's like one, two, three, four, five, six, and male-bodied, quote-unquote, is a man who dresses as a woman, translated. Second term, female-bodied, a woman dressed as a man. Third term, male-bodied again, a man dressed slash living slash accepted as a woman. Female-bodied, a woman dressed slash living slash accepted as a man. 
male-bodied, a non-negative, literally fake woman, quote-unquote. Say non-negative, you mean like the phrase, the term itself isn't doesn't have any negative connotation? That's right. Nice. Female-bodied, literally, quote-unquote, fake man, also not negative. So that's... Yes. But it, there's something... Six different... The English... The English interpretations there. Interpretation of fake man sounds pretty negative, and it's a pretty horrible thing to say. Right, but, that's why they say not negative yeah, here, yeah, yeah, yeah. to try to like be like, that's so not like, really what... We it, know what we sound like, but... <laughs> like, it doesn't out. have the connotations of fake that it does yeah. in English. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that was just the closest approximation that we can get in the confines of our language. That's right. Without making the term a paragraph. And also, there's now... They're switching between the binary of Western understanding, male and female, but, mm-hmm. I mean, who knows what that means? But they're jazz... In Cree, they're, they're, yeah. Right? Who, I have no idea what that means in the context of Cree. Like, all these three different male-bodied and female-bodied things. Mm-hmm. That's cool, though. It is cool. Anyway, a definition of two-spiritedness in the Cree comes from Alex Wilson, a two-spirit member of the Pascawak. So what they say is, our Cree dialect does not include gender-distinct pronouns. Rather, our language is quote-unquote gendered, um, as in it was in quotes, on the basis of whether or not something is animate, that is, whether or not it has a spiritual purpose or energy. Our creation story takes us back to the stars, and a central figure or character is Wisejicek, represented by the constellation other people call Orion, a trickster and a teacher. I call it Orion, actually. Is another trickster? We see Jacek, yeah, shifts gender, form, and space to playfully teach us about ourselves and our connection to the wider universe, land, and waters, living things, and each other. Oh. We see Jacek's stories are traditionally only told in the winter when their constellation of the giant is, is visible. Is high in the sky. You get high in that sky. The mist of the stars that Alex mentions goes as follows. So the story that they're talking about is called The Origin it's of the not, Moon. I'm looking up into the big, big black big black ceiling that we call sky uh there's a bunch of little like salt pieces in it how they get here well this is the origin of the moon not the origin of the stars okay but i want to know all right tell me where the big big white comes from and then tell me where the small whites come from tell me where the big white in the sky come from the moon yeah okay big flat white round where the how'd that get here so and if you can make it a little bit trickstery for me that'd be really great it is halloween I'll t- the trickster god is in here yeah. Is their name, and is it a classic but, trickster name like Loki, Enki, Anansi, Coyote, Kitsune, well, or Seth? You know, the classic tricksters. Well, he's got lots of different names, so. Do any of them end with E? No, right now it's ending in Chuck. So, meh. Yeah, but you just said you got, all right, tell me how that big, big round flat white got in the sky, though. All right. A long time ago, there was no How moon. long? <laughs> so, a lot of indigenous myths come from time immemorial, since Tell humans were humans. how long ago, Maddie. And they're all oral traditions, so no one fucking wrote it down, because <laughs> there's no need. A long time ago. Before, like, Frank Herbert's first dune? Yeah. There was no moon. There was uh, only the sun. That doesn't sound right. The creator had messengers who helped him in his work. One of these was the caretaker of the sun. He had two children, a boy and a girl. All three lived in the sky world. They were very happy. Aww. The daughter looked after the camp. She kept it clean and tidy. That sucks. 
Yeah. When she shook the feather bedding, the feathers would fall to the earth as snow. The sun hunted and fished. You telling me snow is feathers? Mm-hmm. Mine get me on that. When he hung his nest to dry, droplets fell to the earth as rain. The father would be away. All day he kept the great fire burning on the sun. What made the fire so great? As it was large. That's pretty great, okay. He was very old. Soon he would leave his children, never to return. <laughs> As old fathers do. He said to them, when I die, you must keep the fire burning, or else the people and animals will, on earth will die. Oh, and that's sun. That's the sun. That's sun. Yeah. One day the fire was low on the sun. When the father came home tired, that ain't good. he said, children, my children, my children, I have to go. I will never return. <laughs> I need to go. Wait, I'm going out for cigarettes. I'll be, I'll be right back. I promise. The children cried and mourned. They knew he would die. In the morning, it was time to start the sun's fire. The children began to quarrel over who would do the task. I will tend the fire. I am older, said the sister. No, I'm the man. I will do it, said the brother. That's a good man voice. They yelled thus to each other. The people on earth began to worry, saying, Why is the sun so late? It should be up by now. Can you imagine how Vizikichek, fucking weird that would be? Yeah. Vasikachek went to the sun to see what was the matter. When he arrived, the boy and his sister were still quarreling. Vasikachek was angry. The people and animals will perish, he said to them. It is up to you. You keep the fire burning. My guts! He told the boy, Your name from now on will be... Natalie. Pissim. Damn it. To the sister, he said, You too will work as hard as your brother. You will keep the fire in another place. You will work at night. In the garage. You will be Tipiska Wipisim, the moon. Oh. The two of you did not get along. As a punishment, you will see each other only once a year. For all time, you will see each other from across the sky. And oh. so it happened. Even oh, so, it is the, now. Is that the eclipse when they see each other? Mm-hmm. So that's when uh, brother sister kiss? I don't think they kiss. I that's think they just they see kiss, each other. Right? No, that's just they to kiss. see each other. Uh, yeah, I see a lot of each other. So, in this one, the trickster god isn't very tricky. He no, just, it seems he pretty just, straightforward. <laughs> all he does is actually just save everyone and become a guardian well, of, yeah, and create the moon and the sun. Hasn't received that. They haven't fully grinded yet to become like they haven't leveled up their trickster status to get the E at the end of their name. Mm, yeah. So they're not really. Fully tricksteed yet. Tricksteed? Yeah. Tricksteed yet? No tricksteed? They're not fully tricksteed yet. Gotcha, gotcha. Trixie, Trixie Mattel. <laughs> She's a jokester god. Yeah, totally. All right, well, we're continuing our anthology of genderqueer myths, of, and we're, we're scooching over. So, but that last story never, I don't, so why did the Kree want to destroy Xandar? What are you talking about? Why did Ronan want to destroy Xandar so badly, though? This is, I'm like, it's going over my head, this Marvel context that you're trying to throw into a drink. Drink context. <laughs> Zuni. Okay, the Zuni tribe. Where are they from? Southwest Pueblo, also. New Mexico. New Mexico-ish. That's Pueblo. Pueblo's town. So. God, New Mexico is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Scott and Indy, I want to come back. We want to come back. <laughs> if you're out there listening, bring us home. The name Kohamana is derived from the prefix ko from the coco, and Ilhamana, the Zuni word for a genderless, dual-gendered person. 
Kohamina wears the blue-green half-mask and dance kilt of a male rain dancer and wears a black dress and has the white arms stereotypical of a female kachina and furthermore wears hair characteristically half up in the women's style, half down in the men's style. In Zuni culture... Like an emo kid. Komana mediates the potentially dangerous division between genders, reconciling social differences and maintaining balance in the Zuni community. Mm. This is fun. I like this one a lot so far. (laughs) This just feels like a scrappy emo child that's living danger, like just constantly vaping and changing their pronouns day to day. I love it. I love the danger. (laughs) Here is the creation myth in the Zuni tribe associated with Gender queerity. Gender queerity? Did you just coin that? Maybe. Because that's very good. I'm sure someone has already said it. Yeah, but do they have a podcast? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's the first myth. In the beginning, a one will... you sell things if you said it had gender queerity in it. <laughs> a one will own a deity both male and female, was the only being in the great space of desolation and foggy blackness. Through thought and innate knowledge, Awan Milona created the clouds and waters from its breath, initiating the creation of the rest of the universe and deities. The universe is composed of nine layers, each home to different animals and plants. In the middle is the earth, a circular island surrounded by oceans that feed smaller bodies of water like lakes and rivers through underground lakes. Oh, it's just some of that flat earth shit. The first people were parented by Sky Father and Earth Mother, and lived in the dark fourth layer of the universe deep inside the body of Mother Earth. They were covered in slime, had tails, webbed hands and feet, and could not see well. That's pretty cool, right? That's That's kind of like the beginning of It's it's a lot like creatures that we that like climbed in the mud like it's a lot like the Egyptian Egyptian creation myth, actually, from the primordial chaos like chaotic blackness and infinite darkness, black void from which these elder gods sprang and then kind of ripped their bodies apart to make all the other gods and then once again masturbated to create life it's fun that primordial dark goo is the place to be yeah totally do you need your antibiotics for your busted ass foot (laughs) you can take those on you don't need to wait till after the podcast go ahead and chug those down and I'll, i'll entertain the people while you rip rip a couple pills there just crack that bottle, snip, grip it, and rip it. Do you there want you me go. to literally yeah. take antibiotics on the podcast? Uh, yeah, these antibiotics look shockingly similar to the narcotics that she was taking in Queen's Gambit. Staying up all night planning chest moves on the ceiling of her room? Nope. Okay. I'm to pass you. So, all right. So, yeah, tell me how these fellas are doing with their slimy With hands and things. Those remind me of, like, the first little creatures that you saw in, like, Darwin's evolution, like, in the museums of natural history. Like, the beginning creatures that are land creatures that are amphibious, sort of. It's kind of, like, scientific, it feels like. Then, because the sun father was lonely, with no one to give him offerings and prayers, he instructed his twin sons, the war gods, to lead the people out from inside the earth. Wow, that, that sounds a lot like the, um... Kind of like the Hero Twins a little bit. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of the Hero Twins. It's like all of these creation stories come from the sim- a similar framework and fabric, which almost lends itself to a belief in a... Uh, collective human consciousness? Collective unconsciousness, yeah. It's very Jungian of you. Mm-hmm. Okay. As the Zunis climbed up a ladder to the Earth's surface, their bodies became normal and the slime disappeared. Normal. <laughs> Normies. 
<laughs> okay, that. Damn it! I want. <laughs> Their bodies became. That's normal. on my tombstone. He became normal, and the slime disappeared. Oh, that's great. Priest and I never want to lose my slime. A lot of kids always said they don't want to grow up and get jobs and become an adult. I used to always lament losing my slime as a child, and I never have. That's to right. This day, I'm You're still, still slimy. <laughs> Okay. After a time. He never lost his slime. That's the slickest man I've ever seen. Priests and deities taught the people how to make offerings, recite prayers, and conduct ceremonies to honor Sun Father and other spirits. After a time living near their place of emergence, the deities told the Zunis to go forth and find their Itiwana, the middle place of the world, the where they button. should build it's their mid- villages. Middle place again. Mm-hmm. The rain priests led the people, but every time they chose a place to settle, signs from the spirits manifested as misfortunes. So this is just an allegory for cool queer communities being established and then, like, gentrification by tech bros? Showed them they had not yet reached the Itawana. Finally, after many years of traveling, the Zunis met an especially powerful and old rain priest. When they prayed with them, heavy rain fell. A water spider appeared with its legs outspread and told the people that the Itawana was directly under its heart. The Zunis built one village at the spider's heart and six others at locations marked by the six legs of the water spider. At the exact site of the spider's heart, the Itawana of the world, the Zunis built an altar as a reminder of their journey and their duty to honor the powerful deities who led them there. The altar still stands at the center of the Zuni village. So, additionally, there's another creation myth where a Kolhamana was captured by an enemy spirit and transformed in the process. What was transformed? The transformed spirit was able to become a mediator between the two important roles of agriculture and hunting. No shit! By being some part of both things. The deities created this middle role for a purpose, and this purpose is celebrated in ritual dance. And this is still Sumi? Zuni, yes. Zuni. So then it's like the roles of agricultural and hunting that were the traditional gender roles of male and female. So to have an intermediary spirit is an intermediary between those two gender roles as well. The belly button between the roles. Mm-hmm. To close our little anthology of genderqueer stories, I would like to end with a real life story of how Maddie and I met. This a is famous Zuni Ilhama. So this is a real-life person that's a two-spirit indigenous person. I prefer real dead people. <laughs> They're probably dead by now. Oh, well, thank you. That makes me, Thanks for comforting me, babe. No, they are dead. The most famous Zuni Ilhama was Wewa. Wewa was born into the Zuni tribe around 1849. Yeah, they're dead. Yep. They're dead. <laughs> Quite dead. In what is today New Mexico. See, I told you it was New Mexico. Wewa's mother was a member of the Donashi Kui clan, the badger people. And Wewa's father was part of the Bishikui clan. Are there desert badgers? The dogwood people. Sorry, what was the word you just used? Dogwood people. So that's like a tree. Okay. Orphaned as an infant, possibly as the result of a smallpox epidemic, Wewa and their brother were adopted by a paternal aunt. Wewa remained a part of their mother's clan, but maintained a lifelong ceremonial tie to their father's Kapai kinswoman who was an expert in ceramics. Weiwa trained for years to master the elements of pottery, many of which held ceremonial importance. 
Waywa also became a skilled weaver, usually also, a male role. I like the, the pottery thing is there, though. It's like a callback to the actual creation myth. Yeah, but that was in uh, Dine, which is not Zuni. But Dine culture existed in New Mexico, so there could still be some overlap. There could be. Learning different looms in order to make blankets, belts, sashes. Waywa became known for their talent as a craftsperson and was able to sell their work and gain notoriety. They were trained to perform traditionally male kachina dances and became a member of the Medicine Society. Just really an extremely talented and multifaceted person. I hate people like this. I Can do like literally all the things in both gender roles. Shows the cool. love it. Motherfucker. <laughs> so in 1879, the U.S. government's newly created Bureau of Ethnology. That sounds good. Sent an expedition to collect artifacts and record the customs of the Zuni people. Okay. The wife of... What year? 1879. Great. The wife of the anthropologist Stevenson became so enamored with Weiwa that the couple ended up in convincing Weiwa to visit Washington, D.C. with them for around six months as a cultural diplomat. So, since Weiwa had such an extensive historical, practical, and cultural knowledge of their own tribe... Please tell me this ends with Stevenson's wife leaving Stevenson to be with Weiwa. No. Damn it. I would watch the fuck out of that movie. That would be really good. They basically impressed everyone in the capital, so stories were told... Dear me! Look uh, at these ceramics. Pottery, you say? <laughs> Stories were told and headlines were made about the quote-unquote Indian princess as Weiwa was taken for a cisgendered woman. Since women were not traditionally diplomats for the United States, it caused a bit of a stir. Even though they're, they're not. They're alone. No. Weiwa assisted Stevenson with his anthropological research and denoted the cultural importance of several artifacts in the Smithsonian. It's possible that Weiwa did all of this, made a gift for the President Cleveland's wife, attended meetings, helped with research, to assist the Zuni tribe in retaining their land, culture, and way of life. That's probably why they did it. Yeah. However, it didn't stop the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs from forcefully assimilating and dismantling tribal culture on the Pueblo as much as possible in the years after Weiwa returned from the capital. Good job, America. And this is why Weiwa killed JFK. <laughs> what? Yeah. You're going there, right? Huge conspiracy theory. Weiwa killed JFK. Oh, my God. They were there. They were in Dealey Plaza that day. I want to say a different joke. You want to try another one? No. Is that not good? Do you not like that? Uh Uh-uh. You don't like that Weiwa killed JFK? I don't know. It's not a good one. Cutting it out. Uh. Didn't make the cut. Come on! (laughs) Didn't make the cut. Maddie! (laughs) No, that's... This this doesn't make any sense. Weiwa crossed over in 1896 at the age of 49 as a result of heart disease during a ceremonial dance. Damn. That's tragic. mm -hmm. Weiwa's early death was considered a calamity amongst the Zuni. What year did they die? 1896. The two-spirit Weiwa left a profound legacy as a ceremonial leader, cultural ambassador, and artist who worked to preserve the Zuni way of life. Influencer. Yeah. We've compiled... I've compiled all of these tales all these tales and the myths that relate to them try to give some sort of context and understanding to these different gender identities. What was the word you just used? Context, drink. Because, of course, I'm interested in genders outside of the binary and the biological and cultural historical significance of these things and to have creation myths that have things both male and female or neither. To have, like mythical stories of trickster gods who create the moon and like all of these things that have such cultural significance and a place in society 
is really interesting. These are specific tribes because being two-spirit is not accepted in every tribe. Just like it's not accepted by every group of people or every person, even, like, around. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I love this. This has been great. Thinking outside the bounds of the Western binary and conformity to that kind of stringent Western European social construct. Harlan Pruden is doing a lot of work to like compile all of the terms of all the different two-spirit identities from all the different tribes and trying to root them in his research with all of the mythology and the cultural understanding that went with them so that they have a place outside of Western understanding of gender. And this goes after, you know, like hundreds of years of being forcibly stamped out, burned, dead. Yeah, it's resurrecting a whole sect of identities and a whole culture that within uh, cultures, within cultures, within cultures that have been systematically obliterated. It's traumatizing to research because you're, you're coming here, you're coming, you're, you're unearthing entire worlds that were destroyed. Yes. And you're finding all of the different ways that they were destroyed by colonizer, Mm -hmm. all of the horrible things that are done to indigenous tribes and these, you know, these assimilation schools and these just rounded up and being murdered, like, for being genderqueer, like, you know, modern, modern times is, like, people don't change. It's, it's horrible. It's wildly, widely understood and just accepted as the fact and truth that it is that we as colonizers did everything in our power to eradicate the cultures of the indigenous people of North America and around the world. But if you think the colonizers made a concerted effort to erase the cultures and beliefs and societies of these people as it was, what do you, how hard do you think they pushed to destroy the queer subcultures as well? Like in that, our listeners, that is the true spooky twist of this Halloween episode colonialism colonialism is always the scary truth and yeah make sure to check under your bed tonight before you go to bed because there could be a colonizer down there you don't want that don't give any candy to colonizers this has been ADD Storytelling I have been Tucker joined as always by our amazing hostess with the foot that's broken the mostest Maddie yeah sorry if I'm not as charming as usual yeah you suck today I was just, I don't know. I am super... You can hear how, like, broken your foot was in the audio mix the whole time? You can hear how broken my foot was? hmm Yeah. And just to give you context, Maddie's foot is broken. Also, like, I don't know. Could you tell that I was passionate about it? That I'm passionate about this subject and that I want to also compile things? I just, like, I don't know. It's it might be our most research heavy episode somehow in a weird way. Hmm. Well, that's cool. I can tell you're passionate about it. Crazy. Indeed. Well, thank you everybody. Thanks for uh, joining us. Yeah, thank you always just for being here. Whoever has still made it and is still listening, that means the world to us. So we'll see you again next week with something equally as spooky. Or, or different in any way. Yeah, I suppose. Until that time, you have fun out there. Mask up when you're trick-or-treating nasty little mongrels. Love you. It's going to be past.
Halloween when this comes out. It's, a, it's Halloween don't, today. Don't break my reality. <laughs> Bye, everybody.